Thank you very much. Well, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at this chapter in the book of Exodus, perhaps one of the most famous parts of Exodus, and indeed the whole Bible. So it's great to be able to have a look at it together with you this morning. Now, there was an article in Rolling Stone magazine about, when was it, 2014, about a guy called Ben Schlappig. And Ben Schlappig was, at 25 years old, one of the biggest stars in the travel hacking movement. I don't know if you know what travel hacking is, basically. Um, The aim is to outwit airlines so that you can fly for free for as long as you can um, without being caught. It basically involves lots of uh, dodgy dealings with air air miles and uh, cashing them in so that you can stay stay flying um, for a very, very long time. Uh, Within one year, he had flown 400,000 miles, which is the equivalent of flying around the globe 16 times. Um, On an average day in this year, he spent six hours in the sky. And um, it had been, uh, when this interview happened, um, it had been 43 weeks since he'd slept in a bed that wasn't in a hotel. Now, he was one of the best people um, in this movement. He'd kind of mastered the art. He'd gained a blog. He got a fan base. Um, When he went to airports, some of the staff recognized him. He sometimes got invited into first-class lounges and things. Um, But this article, as it was talking about um, Schlappig's life and the reports he would send back from these flights that he went on, um, the author of the the article said that the trip reports betrayed a theme. So in photo after photo that he had taken from all of these trips, you would see similar kinds of things. You would see empty lounges, first-class menus, embroidered satin pillows, but you wouldn't see much people, people with him. He said that um, these photos were devoid of human companionship. And reading the article, there's a tension in Schlappig's mind. So on, on one hand, he finds himself at home when he's in the sky. He loves being in the airport. Um, he loves being in, on, on the plane um, thousands of miles uh, above the grounds. And at one level, he sort of thinks that his life could go on forever this way. But he also sees the value of human connection. So he talks about a time when he was at Delhi Airport, and he saw a group of 20 people come to welcome one, one person home. And they had balloons, and they had um, cake, um, and signs, flowers. And he said that there was something beautiful about that. And there's this tension then in his, in his heart and mind. And he says, the world is so big... I can keep running, but at the same time, it makes you realize that the world is so small. He says, I want what I can't have. So here is someone completely obsessed about being at the top, and he's made it. He's absolutely made it. He's famous for what he does, but he's found that it's not fulfilled him. Actually, in a sense, it's trapped him and cut him off from a level of flourishing that he might otherwise enjoy. You could say that his obsession has enslaved him. What if we're all in danger of that? Being enslaved by the things we give ourselves to. So Exodus is the story of a people who are set free from bondage. Today's passage really is the pinnacle of that. 
But it's a picture. It's a picture of the human condition. It's a picture of what we all need, which is freedom. And so as we look at this passage, we look at the themes that it presents, we're going to see not just the struggles we may have with slavery, but the ways in which we can be set free in a way that leads to our human flourishing. So let's, let's have a look at this together. So firstly, um, a slavery problem. A slavery problem. So just to recap on the story, if you've not been following along, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Generations worth have been in slavery. But God finally, in his mercy, has set them free. He chose Moses and his brother Aaron um, to be his spokespeople, to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and demand that the people are let free. Pharaoh um, is stubborn. He chooses not to let the people go. And so as a result, God sends a series of 10 plagues that terrorize the Egyptians. They escalate in severity, and they culminate in a most um, severe plague, which is the death of all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Now, we saw last week that that was an act of judgment against Egypt, but it was not an act that the Israelites were automatically safe from. They had to act as well so that their firstborn sons wouldn't die. How were they to do so? They were given lambs that they were to sacrifice and put their blood on the doors of their homes. And in those ways, they would learn that the lamb would be a sacrifice for their firstborn sons. The lambs would die so they wouldn't have to. Then the plague happens, and there's devastation for Egypt. All of their firstborn sons die. And this is the plague that breaks Pharaoh. He finally relents. He lets the people go. And last time at the end of the passage we looked at, we saw that eventually the people left Egypt. But the Egyptians are not fully dealt with. And they are dealt with finally, though, in today's passage. Today, Egypt becomes a thing of the past for the Israelites. Now, before we get properly into the story, I just want us to reflect on something, which is the relationship between the Passover and freedom from slavery. Now, it's not enough for God to give the Israelites a lamb that will save them from death. That is part of them then leaving Egypt. So they don't enjoy the lamb and the Passover and stay in slavery. Once they are given the lamb, they are then led out. That is, they leave the old life behind. God is saving them from death, but he is also saving them from slavery. It's a clean break. And this is a picture of something that we all have to deal with. That's, that image of slavery is a rich one. It's an evocative one. It might feel personal to some of us in many ways. But it's an image that the New Testament, the, the Bible uses to describe our relationship with sin. Now, sin may sound like an archaic word, but what it is at its core is a heart posture. There's something, a, a direction of who we are that points not towards God, as it should do, as our creator, and sustainer, but to things other than God. We do not want the Lord to be um, in charge of our lives. We want to be autonomous. We want to be independent. And so we try and live for ourselves. Now, the thing is, you know, human beings love sin. We absolutely love it. We think that in it we'll find freedom. We think that in it we'll find um, a life of flourishing and not to be constrained by a God. 
But the sad truth is that sin ultimately locks us up. It actually puts handcuffs on us. It actually enslaves us. So the Bible can speak of slavery to sin. And that is true of all human beings naturally. So how does this work? Let me show you how it works. All of us will find something other than God to give ourselves over to. We will run into the arms of something or someone, and that is going to control us, that's going to drive us, that's going to motivate us. So much so, actually, we will even tie our sense of self to that thing, whatever it is. Some of these are quite obvious, I guess, from the outside. Let's take work. Overwork is something we're all familiar with, whether that's with our university studies or with our career. We may throw ourselves into our work in order to gain, well, whatever it is we want to gain, success, money, um, prestige, whatever. Um, and we may love the, the drive, love the being, being like super busy doing work, but there's a cost. It demands more and more from us. And then it affects other things in life. We find we have less time for our hobbies, our relationships outside of the office, become diminished. Our family and friends don't see as much of us as they once did. We find ourselves enslaved to this desire for, to, to work, this drive. It even affects our health. So, um, oops, there we go. So, um, Anne Peterson wrote a book called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And uh, she says this in an interview one of the saddest things I heard when talking to many millennials is that when they reach a point of exhaustion with work, they lift their head up, they look around them, and they say, what else is there? Do I have a personality? Do I know what I like? Do you see that? That, that drive has caused bad health effects to the point they don't even know what their own identity is. They've so been consumed by this drive. And work is, is one example, but there are lots of other examples. It might be romance, right? Trying to find a, a person who will fulfill us. Our identity is fixed on whether another will, will love us. We need a stable sense of self from that. All of these things, whatever they are, sometimes good things in and of themselves, if we put all our weight on them, if we focus on them um, for the need of our in order to give us a right identity, um, they will enslave us. They will enslave us. Anything other than God will master over us in a, in a negative way. And we all have a master. That is the truth. As uh, Bob Dylan once sang, everybody's got to serve somebody. So who do you serve? And what do you serve? There are more subtle um, masters that we serve. Let's just take the... the Basic desire to be liked by other people. That, that drive for approval. Now, if you realize this is something going on in your life, if you're careful, you will notice that it will pop up, broadly speaking, all over your life. So you may find that you are socially anxious in groups of new people. You may walk away from conversations, replaying them in your own head, Thinking through, oh, did I say something wrong? Was I witty enough? Was I funny enough? Did I sound intelligent enough? 
You may not speak up to defend the truth at times when you should because of what people might think of you. You may be dishonest so that you don't tread on people's toes. You may not even have a go at certain activities that you would like to because you're afraid that you might fail and look stupid. Now, that kind of life is not a life of freedom, is it? It's not freedom. It's enslaving. It's just one example of of so many. And the Bible says that only God, the God who made us, is a good master. But when we turn from him to things that we think will free us, they enslave us in their own way. And so sin, though it is attractive, is actually self-destructive. It's like a war against our own soul. And the slavery of the Israelites is a perfect picture of the slavery all of us face outside of Jesus. And the Exodus story tells us something simple but wonderful. God says, I want to free you from that. I want to take you out of Egypt. So how does it happen? Well, secondly, um, a glorious deliverance. Thanks, Matthew. Okay, let's look back at the story now. Let's get into the text. So... Here's what happens. Israel leaves Egypt. God reveals himself to the people as a a pillar of cloud and fire. And this pillar goes ahead of the people and and shows them where to go. It's like a kind of heavenly sat-nav. And in verse 2, intriguingly, the Lord doesn't take them the way you would expect. He kind of makes them make a wrong turning. Um, They are to turn back instead of heading straight out of Egypt. But this is purposeful. It's a way of luring out the Egyptians, for what God wants to do. And so verse 5, Pharaoh changes his mind about letting the people go. Um, He's let them go, but then he realizes his entire workforce is gone. The economy will have been in tatters in Egypt. And so he gets the best horsemen, the best chariots, and he goes off after the people. The Israelites see the um, the Egyptian army coming towards them, and understandably, they're absolutely terrified. But Moses reassures them, verse 13, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. And what happens next is the stuff of biblical legend. So God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. And verse 21, the sea separates. There are these two huge walls of water. They divide out. They become like these massive static tidal waves. And they allow dry ground between them. And all of a sudden, their people are not cornered. They have a way out. They can walk along the ground. The pillar of cloud and fire protects them from the Egyptians. And so they walk on on that dry land um, across. But then the the pillar presumably moves. And the Egyptian uh, army sets out after the Israelites. They go into the sea. But they're thrown into confusion. They don't really know what they're doing. Verse 25, the wheels of the chariots jam, possibly because the ground is still quite soggy. And by morning, most of the Israelites have got across the sea. The Egyptians are still in confusion. And Moses is told by God to stretch out his hand once again. And those two huge walls of water collapse. The waves crash into each other with unimaginable force, with the Egyptians caught in the middle, and the entire army is drowned. The enemy is defeated, 
And look at the response of the Israelites, verse 31. They feared the Lord. That is, they, they were in awe of him. And they put their trust in him and in Moses. This is how Israel is finally rescued from their slavery. Two things to notice in the text. The first is this. It is God who wins the victory. God is the one who wins. Verse 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Even the Egyptians recognize this. Do you see the repetition? Verse 25. Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So the Israelites, they don't have to get any swords out of their um, sheaths. They don't have to get the shields out. They don't need to do anything as the world's, one of the biggest superpowers in the world is coming towards them with the full force of their best army. They just get to stand on the side of the seashore and they watch God completely deal with them. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who saves. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing is this. God saves for his own glory. Did you notice that? Verse 4, God is going to entice the Egyptians out. Why? I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again, verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The repetition there, it gives a sense of emphasis. This is really important. God wants glory. God alone saves. He does so to glorify himself. Now, what do we mean by that? Last Christmas, uh, Hannah and I spent it on the coast with my family. Um, We were by the beach, and one day we took my niece, who is seven years old, out onto the beach and it's a, a pebbly beach down in Sussex. And so we thought we'd take some stones and throw them into the sea. And, you know, you pick up the kind of smooth stones and try and skim them across the uh, surface of the water. Um, Olivia, my niece, she was absolutely loving it. But every now and again, I didn't want to go for one of the smooth, thin stones. I wanted a big rock. And there was something just, I don't know, like unspeakably pleasing about throwing a rock in the sea. Um, The weight of it, the sound when it hits the water, the big splash as the water um, kind of jumps up in the air with with the rock hitting it. And, And when a rock hits water, it displaces it, doesn't it? It's as if the water around the rock where, where it's hitting the sea gives way, it falls back, it gets out the way so that this heavier object can have its place. That is a picture of glory. So in the Bible, the word glory has the same meaning as weight, weightiness. To be glorious is to be weighty, to be more substantial than everything else around it, in a way that lighter things will give way to that which is glorious. And when we say that God is glorious, we talk about his supremacy, his majesty as the king of everything, his preeminence above everything else. Now, when the Lord says that he wants to gain glory over Pharaoh, it's not that God lacks glory and he needs to increase it. 
What he wants is for his glory, which he, which he already has, to be seen and acknowledged by others. He wants everyone to see his supremacy, to see his greatness as the God of the whole earth. And this is a big theme in scripture. God is saving his people for his glory. It appears time and time again. But that raises a question, doesn't it? So if God saves us for his glory, is that salvation then primarily about how we benefit or is it about how he benefits? Does he rescue his people for their sake or does he rescue them for his own sake? Is God's salvation other-centered or is it self-centered? Can we even say that he loves us if he's doing things for his glory? Do you feel the tension of that? It's a question. So how do we speak to that? Well, let's remember what we've seen in Exodus already. Do you remember God reveals himself as the Lord? That's his name, which reminds us of the burning bush in chapter 3. And at the burning bush, we learn that God is the one who is who he is. I am who I am. That's what he says. He's the fire that does not need fuel. He's entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. Remember, he doesn't even need us. And that helps us when we think through what it means for God to seek his glory. Because he already has all contentment and joy and fullness in himself. He's not a bucket that needs filling. Rather, he fills and gives life to everything else. If that's true, then his desire for glory is not a selfish desire. It's not God being needy. He's not insecure. He's not trying to meet some lack in and of himself. He's not desperate for us to give him a round of applause because he doesn't need it. So whatever it is for God to seek his own glory, it's it's not this kind of selfish, self-obsessed, needy, insecure thing. He's already content in all that he is. Well, why does he seek his own glory then? Two things. Firstly, as an expression of the truth. God is the most glorious being. That's just objectively true. And so his commitment to making that clear is a commitment to truth and reality. And it is better that we know the truth than that we believe lies. But secondly, God seeks his own glory for the benefit of his people. We thrive most as human beings when we see God as the most glorious thing, as the most supreme and wonderful and weighty being. And God loves us best when he shows us his glory because we see what is most valuable and treasurable in the world. So that means that God's glory and our good are not in tension with each other. God serves us best. He loves us best. He is most kind to us when he gives us himself by revealing himself like he did at the Exodus. Now, this is crucial when we think about the things that enslave us. Okay? Let's say that you are shackled by that desire for approval. 
You're riddled with it. You could see it everywhere in your life. How are you going to be free of that? By something coming into your life that will displace that need for people to um, give you approval. Something has to come into your life that has more weight. Like a rock hitting water, something has to come into you to strike you that will displace that desire for approval. You need something with more glory. And that is what the gospel offers us. When we look at the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we see the greatest defeat. The waters of God's justice are unleashed when we see in the gospel, but it's not unleashed on like a group of Egyptians or human beings. Actually, God releases those powers of his judgment on himself. Jesus on the cross deals with God's justice and judgment. It's full force that hits him body and soul. And he does that for us. And by doing so, he breaks the power of sin and death and slavery in the hearts of his people. For those that trust in Jesus, there is a a critical heart change. And what do we do? When we grasp the cross, when we look at it, we see that we could never have saved ourselves. We could never have um, broken our own shackles. We see that Jesus does that for us. We just stand on the shore looking on. But the way he does it is through self-sacrifice. He bears the judgment of God. It is a dramatic show of power, even greater than the Red Sea splitting in two. Now we see that and we say, that is glorious. And if we see the wonder of it, the beauty of it, that is enough to displace these other um, slaveries in our lives, our, our other masters. We see Jesus as a better master. We're able to change. That is a deliverance that is glorious. And it is for our benefit that God seeks his own glory. Because we need to see more than anything else what is more glorious in this world. And that is him. Finally then, a new people. You may not have noticed this, um, but there are themes in this story that go all the way back to the creation in Genesis 1. And perhaps the most obvious one is waters dividing. So if you go back to Genesis 1, you don't need to turn there now, but maybe check it out later. Um, When God creates the world, he creates it out of nothing, but then you have this picture of it being unformed. But what it means to be unformed is for water to cover the earth. It's like a watery, um, unformed planet. And in the ancient world, the sea was associated with chaos and death. And so when you read Genesis, God creates the earth. He forms it like a potter with clay. And one of the things he does is that he separates the waters so that land appears. So he brings order out of chaos. And that gives us context for other passages in the Bible. So when you think about the flood that happens in Genesis 6, that's not just a random act of judgment. It's a reversal of creation. It's a decreation as an act of judgment, a return to chaos. And here in Exodus 14, the same themes are there. Israel is created. There is a new creation. As the waters separate, land um, is revealed and the people walk through it. The Egyptians are decreated, drowning in the sea. 
But for Israel, they emerge new. A new people. That is, with their past in Egypt behind them. They're not defined by their slavery anymore. They've had a decisive break with Egypt. The old life is gone. No more persecution. No more forced labor. They don't need to worry about the Egyptians anymore. And this shows us something important. When God saves his people, he sets them free from slavery and he gives them a new identity. They are not to be defined by what they had in the past from who they were. There's a bit of an odd passage in um, 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says this, commenting on, on the Red Sea crossing. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses. Paul says that there was a baptism that went on at the Red Sea. And when we think about baptism, if you've been baptized, you may have been baptized by being immersed in water. There's this sense that you've gone from death to life. Your old self has gone and you're raised up through the waters as a new person or symbolic of being a new person. We're born again, made new. The Israelites, when they've come out of Egypt, come out of slavery, have been made new. They're a new people, not defined by what they were before. What does that mean for us? It means that if you trust in Jesus, a radical change has happened in your heart. Whether you recognize it as such or not, a radical spiritual change has happened. You are a new person, a new creation. You are not who you were, and you have been free to live a new life. You can be free from the things that enslave you. Here's how Romans 6 puts it. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. When we came to faith in Jesus, symbolized by our baptism, we were united with Jesus so that when he died, our old self died, and when he rose again, we were given a new self, a new spiritual power to live a new life. What does, this, all this, what does all this mean? Dead simply. You can change. Whatever it is that enslaves you, whatever it is that you struggle with in your heart, whatever sins that you tend to gravitate towards, you are not enslaved to them. You can change because you're a new person. That's what the Bible says. Now there's nuance here. Of course, did you notice in Exodus, the Israelites have been freed from Egypt, but when they see the Egyptians coming towards them, even they want to go back to the old life. Did you see that? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Crazy. They want to go back to slavery. And so do we. <laughs> we find ourselves wanting to go back to some of the old things, um, the characteristics that are um, part of the old life. And so in this world, you know, we're always going to struggle with sin to some degree. We'll never become perfect in this life. We have to battle to, 
fight our tendency to overwork, to care too much what people think of us, whatever it is. But we are not enslaved by it. We can change. We can grow. We can make progress. That is possible. It is expected because God is working in us. The problem, though, is believing it. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is an old um, independent minister, he used to use the illustration of um, slavery in the States. So he said, after the American Civil War, slavery was abolished. And so all of those who were slaves in the U.S., young and old, they were given their freedom legally. But the problem was, for these poor people who had endured slavery for generations, it was hard for them to grasp their new identity. They still felt in and of themselves in some way that that slavish life was still part of them. If they saw their old master coming towards them in the street, they'd start to tremble. They'd wonder if they were going to get sold again, even though they were free. And Lloyd-Jones said this, you can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. And the same is true of the Christian life. We may be living as if we are enslaved to things that Jesus has set us free from. And that means some of us have made peace with sins in our life that can be dealt with, but we've resigned ourselves to them. Some of us have patterns of sexual sin, and we think, I'm not going to change. I can't see how I can change. Some of us think, yeah, I've got a bit of a temper, but I've had it for years. It is what it is. Yeah, sure, I have an unhealthy relationship with work, but I don't know, it's it's just who I am. Jesus says, no, that is not who you are. It's not who you are. Not if you're a Christian. Now, it's hard work fighting sin in our lives, absolutely hard work. it, It needs to be prayerful, we are dependent on God, we need help from our brothers and sisters in the church. But we are not slaves if we trust in Jesus. We have had an exodus. God has given us the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus, who is the lamb, and we have been taken out of Egypt. We're a new people. We've been given a new life. And so if we're a Christian, the main thing is we have to believe that, first and foremost. We won't make change otherwise. And if you're not a Christian... Well, come to Jesus and experience this new freedom. You can be led out of Egypt as well. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've delivered us from Egypt. That our sinful old self, enslaved, has gone. And that we are a new creation. Lord Jesus, you did that by your own death. But also your resurrection to new life, taking us with you. Lord, please forgive us if we are still acting like slaves. Help us to see freedom. The freedom that we already have. Help us to live in light of that, please, by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling with sins this morning that have remained in the dark, may they come to the light. 
May they be shared. May burdens be released and lifted. Lord, may we be a community that helps each other live in light of the freedom that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.